Welcome to Matter of Principles, a podcast from the Association of Washington School Principals. We've got some original podcasts in our feed. The podcast you're about to hear is the audio from an episode of AWSP TV, our talk show for principals. Make sure to tune in to our live episodes and catch all of our shows by subscribing to our YouTube channel. In the meantime, enjoy the audio from this episode of AWSP TV. Hey, welcome to another episode of AWSP TV. We are so excited today to have in studio two special guests brought to us by Scholastic. Uh, I'm going to introduce them quickly, but I'm going to let them go into greater detail about their background. In studio today, we have Pam Allen, an author, and Dr. Karen Burt, also an, an author and educational leader. But why don't you go into a little more detail about your background, uh, how you've navigated the world of education, and how you ended up in our studio today. Go ahead, Pam. Thanks, Karen. Uh, my name is Pam Allen, as you said, and uh, I'm an author. I've written many books, but my most recent is a book I wrote for Scholastic called Every Child a Super Reader, co-authored mm. with Dr. Ernest Morell. And uh, I also founded an organization called Lit World, which is a global literacy organization advocating for children's uh, young adults' right to read all around the world and across the U.S. And just recently, I became Senior Vice President for Innovation for Scholastic Education, which is a real honor for me. And I love the idea that we always mesh innovation with education. Um, and I think Scholastic does that better than anyone. So that's what, wow. yeah, right that's on. my role. And thank you, Scott. I'm a, a former educator. I served in, as a cabinet member. I was an assistant suit, an elementary principal, curriculum director, um, worked 10 years in the classroom. And so now I travel the country supporting districts across the country as they look at comprehensive literacy and as they work to assure that all students have that opportunity to really be successful in life, lifelong readers, lifelong learners. So my passion is literacy and supporting school districts as we uh, travel across the country. Right on. Well, we are so blessed to have you both here today. Thank you so much for carving out some time for AWSP and our members. Uh, we have a large group of principals who are sitting out there watching this video today wondering, what am I going to get out of this video and why should I keep watching? So I'd love to have a conversation with you about how do we help our principals be champions of literacy in their school. Whether they're in a large urban school or a small rural setting, they are leaders of literacy. So what are some strategies? What are the challenges that they're facing? What advice would you give them? That's the purpose of this video. So as we talk today, I'm hoping that uh, they'll gleam some golden nuggets from you two on how to be leaders of literacy in their context. So um, let's just start there. Okay, so one of the things I always think about with principals, I'm VP of Data Analysis and Academic Planning for Scholastic Education. So we want that balance between joy and love of reading but we also want to monitor the data. We want to assure that every student is growing one full year in a year. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes our students don't grow that much, but we need to have them doing an intense amount of reading so that they have many, many opportunities. So for principals, I think it's critical to always monitor the growth of the students, so where they're starting and where they're moving to, while assuring that they have access and time to read in their schools. So Pam, I'll let you talk a little bit more about how yeah. important independent reading is for those. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think what Karen said is really important, that balance that our administrators listening, watching today are thinking all the time about how I create a very robust, dynamic learning community and where kids feel safe to be here and where there is an equitable access and abundance to mm. literature and to literacy. Um, and also, as Karen said, the idea that we're always monitoring and really pushing and this rigorous uh, uh, vision that we have that all our kids are going to learn to read and write. Um, but I, I guess I would say just to the bigger question that for administrators, uh, literacy, and I think everyone agrees with this, I think that's why administrators find it very compelling to come together to talk about literacy, is that we see that it's a, it's a foundational tool for every single subject area, um, whether it's math and science or the English language arts or for English learners coming mm -hmm. in or for the kids who are playing sports after school, any of those things require literacy to actually fuel your success in any of those areas, whether you're corresponding with your coach for a football mat game or you're, um, or you're in your English language arts reading an amazing novel. Literacy is the foundational tool. It's the tool you need no matter where you are throughout that day. So for administrators, for all of us who are leaders in the educational space, I think literacy becomes both the most, the greatest challenge we have and also the greatest opportunity we have to actually break through in terms of success. Mm -hmm. I was in a district where we were looking at all the different data and the math scores actually were very low. Um, for the boys, and the, the principal was really scratching her head trying to figure out what was going on. So we pulled out the word problems from the data and realized that once the word problems were gone, mm. the kids looked like they did really well, and that reading was really what was getting in their way. So I think for us to talk together in this virtual way with administrators and think about literacy, it's, it is about the best practices, and for sure I'd love, we can talk about that, I think that, but I also think to have the bigger vision to say, we are all literacy educators in this building, in this district, and how are we gonna manifest that every single day? And I think it's important, as Pam said, that literacy, we don't wanna make every teacher a teacher of reading, right? We know that they don't have those skills, but we wanna make every teacher a teacher of literacy because in social studies, in science, they're passionate about whatever their subject is that they teach but they have to assure that those students have access to their content. So they have to be understand those best practices that will allow them to access their content. So I think Pam is absolutely right when she talks about, you know, literacy is the foundation. And we see those students, many of them come in at risk, right, already. They don't have the language, they don't have the vocabulary. So our schools and our as principals, we have to assure that not only the curriculum is there, but the teachers understand that those students need more oral language than ever before. They need to use that vocabulary. They need to hear that vocabulary. And they need to hear it from books that are read aloud to them, right? Mm -hmm. So we have these wonderful opportunities for them to hear language that they haven't heard before. So we're constantly expanding their language and their opportunities. So as principals, I want principals to see active conversation in classrooms. I want ch uh, children to be read to. So I want those read alouds to be a little bit above where those students are so they begin to glean that wonderful vocabulary, that 
comprehension of new stories, building background knowledge. We know that background knowledge is so critical, and many of our students don't have an opportunity to, to do some of the things that maybe middle-class students have an opportunity to do. So principals need to be vigilant about what those classrooms look like with regard to, do they have enough books? Are teachers using read-alouds every single day? Are they helping students to access books that are just right for them? Are they giving them time to allow students to do the reading that we want them to do? Many times, and many of our students tell us that the only time they really get to read is when they're in school. So I think in education, we are probably professionals at having flavor of the month. The next greatest thing, the next initiative that is going to solve all the literacy problems uh, or issues in our country. So without a principal thinking, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach this in my building without creating literacy, or not literacy, but uh, initiative fatigue, mm. what examples have you seen of principals who've created that culture in their school where everyone is uh, a leader of literacy, a champion of literacy? What are some tangible examples where you've seen that culture created? I mean, that, that's the best question because I think we need tangible examples and we want to have sort of the images or vision in our minds. I, for me, I, I'll say what I see that's powerful is when, and I think this is something that's been very exciting as a result of the book that Dr. Morell and I wrote because people really, administrators really started picking up on this idea of the super reader as opposed to thinking about scores or levels. They mm. said that I, we love that term. It's a very powerful term. It includes everybody. It's a, you can be a super reader, like the way Karen was saying, watching kids advance. You may not be coming in at grade level, but you're going to be mm. always improving. And that idea of the super reader really encompasses that. So in terms of examples, we've had many districts across the country that have really embraced this idea of what does it mean to be a super reader community mm. and the joy and power of reading and, and also that idea of the rigor of reading experience that we're going to increase our minutes, we're going to read more every day, we're going to have our eyes on text um, every single day. Because I think, yes, it's true that kids are reading sometimes only in school, but when I do walkthroughs with principals and I say to them, rather than look at what the teacher is doing, what I want to do is look at what are the students doing? How many minutes a day are they actually putting their eyes on text they really care about? Mm. Rather than either just listening to the teacher give a lesson about reading comprehension and then never actually getting to practice that reading comprehension or practicing something but not in a text that's engaging to them. And so what we've found by creating super reader communities and having principals take that on is that they're doing things like when I come to do a walkthrough, I'm really going to be looking at what your kids are doing. I'm going to be asking them what would it take for you to be a super reader in this community, not just asking teachers, not just asking parents, but actually polling students and finding out from our kindergartners, well, the lighting is really bad. Like we need to have better lighting and mm -hmm. reading is hard or I, I'm afraid I really, really can't see the pages and to have principals do you know, school-wide initiatives around getting kids reading glasses, which is now happening in New York City. The entire city of New York is in a partnership um, with a, a, a company that provides glasses and the kids from kindergarten and first grade are all going to be outfitted, those who need them. Th those are things, those are real barriers that stand yeah. in the way. And when you mm -hmm. see yourself as a super reader community, then that starts opening up. The other thing I would say that we've seen in our work is 
um, closing the summer achievement gap. Um, I call it the summer engagement gap. I, I'm more interested in engagement because I think engagement leads to achievement. I think people try a lot of different, like you said, there's in initiative fatigue. And I think a lot of that is the kids feel the fatigue the worst yeah. because every year it's something different. And really the question, and I think what I love about Scholastic and working closely with Scholastic is that we're always thinking about engagement. And so uh, we built a summer program called Lit Camp that actually really does close that engagement gap. And a lot of the districts where I work and, and side by side and, and working with administrators, we've started to say, let's not have this be just a, you know August to May initiative, but let's talk about a 365 day a year commitment to super readers, you know, what's happening in June, July, and August, wow. and not just what's happening while, you know, that sort of old-fashioned way of looking at what, what our commitment and obligation is to our kids. So I think that's where I've seen the greatest excitement and the greatest success and the greatest, you know, we're looking both, you know, at the emotional mm -hmm. components of reading and writing, because there's a lot of social-emotional components on that, but also what is the data showing as the kids' scores are improving when they see themselves as super readers and they can see that the district is really making that 365 commitment. Awesome, and I wanna come back to you and, and dive a little deeper in maybe some of the tangible behaviors of principals. So be thinking on mm -hmm. that one. I'd love to have, have Karen answer the same question. And, and before I let you go, I'm thinking uh, I'd love to see our principals in uh, superhero outfits. Just a little plug out there. I love Super that. reader. Anyway, that's where, yeah, that's where I, my I'm mind with goes. You. I'm with you. I can you. see that. Big, yeah, you know, yeah, big SR right there. You yes. Gotcha. Um, so going in and reading to classes, right? Um, also, what about in the principal's office? We've, we've seen many principals have a book collection so that when children come to the office or parents come to the office, it's really building the culture from the inside out and from the outside in. So books, as, as many places as we can have them. Um, one of the principals in, in, in a school said, all of my students should be reading on the way to school. So everybody gets a book. Um, your, your job is to read on the bus mm. as you come to school. So the principal was greeting the students as they came off the bus, and they would have to tell him the book that they were reading. So it was an amazing experience to watch these, um, the little ones, but also the middle school students. So one, one uh, they had a middle school elementary school challenge. And so these middle schoolers coming off, holding their book and saying, I'm reading this. Have you read this, mister? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the principal being challenged as well to read. I think also as you build that culture, having children see adults reading. So it's an opportunity that a teacher might say, oh, I'm going to be meeting with teachers today and we're reading the book, whatever that might be. Um, a principal sharing a book that he's reading. You know, just on the uh, daily announcements, mm -hmm. um, a little quick little intro to a book, a book talk. I think building that, that joy, that love of reading first is such an important part. But as Pam said, we want every student to see themselves as a super reader, so we want to see the progress as well. So it is, and I'm going to go back to that balance. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm a data person, and the goal is to assure that students will not become the ones who can read but choose not to, right? We don't want illiterate students. We want students who really enjoy reading, love to read, 
um, and will pick up a book for for fun. Mm -hmm. So I think those are a couple of things, but I think also we have to engage our families more. So a principal's job is really not to just bring families in, but to help them learn how to help their children. So what are some of the kinds of things that we can do? Well, maybe you're, you can't read, and we wouldn't say that to parents, but we might say, here are some questions you could ask uh, any child about what you're reading. So we help them understand the questions, or tell me about the character in the book, or would you like to be like that character? So some general kinds of things that parents can do with regard to learning, so that it's always connected to learning and that the children see the parents as supporting that learning as well. So the principal's role is to assure that there's time, that we meet the parents where they are, um, where they need um, their time frames, and to bring them in so that they can be partners in that learning and really be engaged, not just involved. Yeah. I've heard a great comment from a student one day when I was out visiting a high school, and she said she'd, she'd read uh, like Water for Chocolate, mm. and she said it was the first time in her K-12 experience, and this was a junior in high school, where she saw herself mm. in literacy, mm. in a book. Uh, so what have you seen as far as the market of books that are available to kids to where, you know, we talk about being culturally responsive, but I don't know if necessarily mm. the materials out there are catching up with us. What are you seeing out there as far as resources and tools for our principals who have these massively changing demographics in their communities? What, what advice would you give them as far as where to go? I mean, I, I think that's a huge, it's a, of a maximum importance because that story that you told has been, I've seen over and over and over a child experiencing that sense of self-discovery mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, we, um, we often, I think there's a lot of busy work and important work around reading skills and reading development, but when you think about what's happening to your sense of self and identity as you read and how important it is to know that you matter in the world and that, that your story, stories like yours are being told and that you yourself could actually be someone who authors stories like that is of profound importance and outcomes too for uh, administrators, for all of us in leadership. Uh, we're really, I think that Scholastic is on the cutting edge of cultural responsive text collections. And we've been out there in front. I mean, the, the company was founded 100 years ago. And the founder of the company, Mr. Robinson, he created a credo that was all about cultural responsiveness and mm -hmm. about equity. This was 100 years ago. It's just amazing. And the reason I'm so inspired by that is because I do still think that in the publishing world, I think there's still a lot of barriers. Yeah. I think that we have to be out there in front because we have to make sure that our kids know that it's a mirrors and windows world and that that mirror is yourself, but also not only just about mirrors, but also that I can read a book and say, I could be that person in the world. I could read about you know some amazing woman as a, as a little girl and say, I could be that woman someday. That could be me. Um, when I ask people what books have changed your life, um, and it's very interesting to me when I hear how many uh, of women who have very interesting careers talk about people like Nancy Drew um, and uh, other real strong 
female characters. Those are, those are also really important, not, not to say that we're all going to be child detectives, but that it's something very courageous in that character that really resonates. And I think that just having as administrators for our audience today, really visiting classrooms, talking to teachers, talking to kids, doing analyses of the classroom libraries yeah. to say, are we where we need to be in terms of culturally responsive classroom collections? The library you know, worries me a lot of the time when I say to administrators, I want to make sure you have abundance of text, the way Karen was talking about, wherever you go, you're going to stumble over books, whether that be online or offline, and have principals say to me, well, we ordered books three years ago. We already did classroom libraries. And I say, as publishers, you know, I'm representing Scholastic. We're publishing right, yeah. right now. We're publishing these amazing books. Are those books in your classroom? At, um, for Lit Camp, we just actually created Lit Camp in Spanish. And one of the things I'm the proudest of as a co-author to that program is that we uh, searched out authors that represent many different Latino perspectives and cultures. There is not just one Latino right. culture. Right. And so we really made a huge commitment. These are not books that are just translated from the English. Right. They're books about culture. We are raising vo voices of these incredible Latina and Latino authors. And I think that it's important that school districts also make the commitment, not say, well, we'll do that later, or, well, it's more expensive to buy those books, because oftentimes they are, because they're being published in smaller batches. And so I say to districts, you also have to step up to the equity plate. It's not just about where those books are, but are they in your classrooms? And are we all willing to make that commitment? Because I, I think that idea of um, equity is that we will uh, achieve true equity if children see and young adults see that the books and stories that are written are written about them and by them. So they say, you know what, my story matters and can be permanent in the world too. And that's nothing, that's not a small thing. And it mm -hmm. actually, it's so, so empowering and so much about equity that whatever that young person is doing as a learner, as a scholar, they remember I was there. Yeah. They have to see themselves in books, mm -hmm. right? When they never see themselves as books, they're marginalized. Uh, when they never see themselves as, as characters or as living in those, those texts. So one of the things that principals could do is have the teachers do an audit of their library. But helping the teachers understand what it means. Because I sometimes think we get in you know, our groove and our path and sometimes we don't know what culturally responsive literature is, what it means to see yourself. Think about if you had never seen yourself in a book as you were growing up. And Nancy Drew, I'm sorry, is my all-time favorite. <laughs> oh, see, um, I so never I knew that. Like, yes, no wonder I like I, you so much. So, and I have the old books. You know, uh-huh, yes, ones. of course. But, were those with the blue cover and the yeah. yellow? Yes, okay. yes. Yeah. And the Hardy Nancy Boys. Nancy Drew fan, too, and oh, the Hardy I'm, Boys. Yeah. All right. They, the Absolutely. same person wrote both, you know. I, awesome. Mm -hmm. So I think helping teachers to first understand what that means and then also about how to select those books. And as you know, Pam said, Scholastic has been way out in front for many years of this, really putting together collections or helping school districts or schools themselves really curate a library that will give them those um, a, a greater breadth and greater mm -hmm. depth. So it's very important that you have the materials there, but then teachers have to also use them, right? So it's how do we use them mm -hmm. in um, in a way that allows mm -hmm. students to see themselves, the mirrors, 
but also allows them to see other cultures outside. So the windows, right? Mm -hmm. So we're looking for both those mirrors and those windows. And I would just add to that that um, something that we've been talking a lot about together um, as our in our community is really thinking not just about the characters in books, but also are the authors reflective of a cultural mm -hmm. diversity as well as um, thinking about just the sort of broad spectrum of what the topics are that people are writing about and are those topics represented in subjects and perspectives also. So not just saying, okay, the main character, but right. also what is the main character doing and, yeah. and also who are the authors in my room? And I think that's another aspect of that responsiveness. Right. And the settings. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're living in dairy farm, right, and you have to see books that are set there, but you also have to then transcend that. You know, people living in uh, urban, you know, sitting on a brownstone. Well, if you never see students who have those same types of lives as yourself. So again, it is about mm -hmm. the authors. It's about the settings. It's about giving kids opportunities to see that breadth of uh, context for them. And again, it's building that background knowledge, right? I see who I am and I extend my knowledge. Oh, I didn't know that, even if it's a, a fictional tale. So it's getting children to really also build the social emotional. So one of the ways that, that literature is so critical in seeing yourself and others is the social emotional aspect. You know, principals don't have time today to do another add-on about social emotional. So how can we use that, how can we use literature mm -hmm. as a way that's not only culturally responsive, but also social and emotionally responsive to students' needs so that we can build in empathy, so that we can build in how do we treat each other, so that we can build in that respect or those executive functions that we want students to have. Yeah. So those are so important as we look at the libraries that each of those teachers has to offer as well as the school library. You know, the research is really clear. Libraries in the classroom are the first uh, go-to for students, and they remember those so, so well. I picked that off of, you know, Mrs. Ross's book library bookcase, or I, I, I got that when I was in Mr. Um, uh, you know, whoever's classroom. So I think that also connecting in that relationship. And as Pam said, continuing to build, you know, I was with a school district and they said, well, we bought libraries five years ago. And I said, fabulous. So how have you continued to increase? I know my son is a, a teacher. He seventh grade English language arts. So periodically, so mom, what new books can I get? You know, <laughs> so it's always about extending that opportunity for students. We would teacher. love to partner with Scholastic and have a principal's library. Mm. We That's have, a great, well, that'd be great. great idea. That, yes. that somehow Scholastic provided a little mini library for every I, principal. That's just, amazing. No pressure. I, I mean, I just threw that out I on the camera. It. Um, I love it. So that's a good um, challenge. It is kind of a good challenge. And make a slight pivot is kind of you were just starting to go there is in our state, and I don't think we're unique to the rest of the country, there's a lot of pressure to reduce suspensions and keep students in school. So principals are on the front lines of this when students blow out of a classroom. Yeah. A student gets dropped into a principal's lap either at the classroom or sitting in the front office. Um, and oftentimes, because we're trying not to suspend, principals end up having a student shadow 
um, or many student shadows all day long. Have you seen anything out there where you see principals doing creative things around uh, discipline, but weaving literacy into that, incorporating some reading, you know, so the students don't even realize that they're reading while they're waiting to see the principal? Have you seen anything there? Because I've got principals who are dying out there with um, the care of kids during the day because they have to keep them in the school. Well, I, I mean, that, to me, that I, as soon as I envision that scenario, I immediately want to sort of back up to talk about the why and the why and the why. Like mm -hmm. why, how we get there where our students feel so disenfranchised that they want anything to be out. And what we've found in our research and in my work alongside administrators and districts where this has been a prevalent problem mm -hmm. is that when we do sit down with the students to say what brought you out of the classroom today, why are you here, it's so much of the time, 98% of the time, it's because that student felt embarrassed or shamed as a learner in the classroom. And maybe not at all uh, intentionally by a teacher through any stretch of the imagination, but really more because the entire culture of reading and academic achievement is putting a huge amount of pressure on that student to keep up, to make it up, to in, in, uh, make something up that doesn't exist yet for that student. Yeah. And so I want to just back up from that to say, I want to reduce those suspensions. I want to reduce the absentee uh, rates that we have in this country. I think the biggest issues we have with absenteeism and suspensions come from our students, and I've learned this the most from the students I work with, um, the first program I started, I'm kind of an entrepreneur of educational programming, is, um, was a program called Books for Boys, which runs to this day at a foster care agency in New York City. And I'm um, very proud of that program, and Scholastic has done a lot to support it. Uh, but the boys in that program really taught me a lot about why that ends up happening. And for them, number one is shame about reading mm. and a feeling that they don't fit in and that they're going to be embarrassed and that they'll they'll do pretty much anything because most of us will to, to avoid shame. Shame is the, the probably the worst lever in education. It's the, the worst. Um, the opposite of shame is hope. And, um, and I think we have to commit to and, and really be open to our own failings and our own, what is it I can do better? Something I've always said to the boys at Children's Village, I know I could do better. I want you to help me, guide me on how we can do better. And a lot of what they'll talk about is let, let us read books we really want to read. Don't make fun of us when we still have to read picture books when we're in middle school. Mm -hmm. um, give us a chance to catch up by reading books that are really at our independent reading level. Um, give us books that maybe look silly to you, but and they didn't win any kind of big award, but they're books that make us laugh and yeah. make us feel like we're kind of part of the whole community here. Um, and so we really, I think, being responsive to that. And then to your point, once, and we, you know, there are so many complex reasons why kids maybe are feeling marginalized. And interestingly, to Karen's point about the social emotional environment, one of the things working on the super reader initiatives around the country is I've had many school guidance counselors and nurses approach me at conferences and say, this is like the most important thing that nobody's ever talked about, yeah. which is how to create that social emotional reading environment. But to the question you asked more specifically about that young person who's shadowing the principal <laughs> to get to there, that yeah. moment, 
is something that we've done, which has been very successful, is um, we've done a lot of work around creating super reader youth ambassadors, where we identify young people. And we've done this um, with Lit Camp, where we put high school students as the junior ambassadors with younger children in the classroom to be their reading leaders for the day so they can read aloud picture books to them and they can really be reading aloud from text that seems deceptively simple mm -hmm. but may actually be at the reading level of that older child and then he or she feels really good to do it and the younger children are just thrilled to have the older boy or girl in the classroom with them. So um, what I, I strongly suggest is more interage uh, opportunities for our older kids who are feeling marginalized in their room in the ninth grade classroom may feel like the hero, the superhero, superstar mm -hmm. in the first grade classroom. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I think using our students who um, just going in and training them how to read a picture book to younger children. and the joy that they get or the excitement that they get of helping another child is is so amazing. But, you know, way back um, when we went to school, or at least I went to school, um, bibliotherapy was um, a huge part of what we did in our learning about literacy. And it's really about taking that either trauma or that that situation and having the child see another child in that situation and how they worked out of it. So as literacy, again, uh, maybe reading a chapter, maybe talking about or giving a child a book that's easy to read about a similar situation so that then they can talk to the principal about it or they can talk to their favorite person. But as we're talking about this, it's all about relationships, right? I mean, if we, we learn from those we love, plain and simple. So principals have an incredible job. They have to be managers, right? They have to be instructional leaders. But they also have to build relationships. And I think the more children see those principals as human beings, as connectors, as you know my name, mm -hmm. you connect to me, um, I've read the same book you've read. It creates a different kind of an atmosphere because I don't want to disappoint you. I want to make sure that I live up to your expectations or that I make you proud. So the the principal's job is never done, right? Um, it's And it's a relationship-building one. It's building relationships with the children. It's building relationships with the teachers. It's building relationships with the community and the parents. So there's a level of trust. So sometimes students will, those students that are following him around or her around today, will want to come back because they've built a relationship that maybe they haven't been able to build elsewhere. So I would say to principals, it's hard work but you never know what happens down the road. You know, when you get the letter from the high school student that says, you know, you made my elementary years tolerable, you made my middle, middle school years tolerable. So relationship building mm -hmm. is so critical. And I think literature can do uh, a great deal to build that coherence between that relationship as well. Another question for you, and uh, I think most people can relate to this question. I have two kids. One was an avid reader who we couldn't pull out of books, and one we couldn't even get to hold a book. So 
what advice would you have for parents who might be watching this on, on how to engage that reluctant reader mm -hmm. without creating conflict in the home? You know, that, that same question every night, have you read tonight? How much did you read? How long did you read? Just creates conflict and then I think there's animosity that grows over time about reading. So what advice would you have about engaging reluctant readers, whether it's a parent at home or a teacher or a principal in the school? I mean, family life is, you know, reading is a beautiful thing to have as part of our family lives in whatever way feels comfortable for us. I think that many times that question comes up when I'm doing family events um, where obviously your kids are never going to be the same and their interests are going to be different. And yet it is one of those few things that we can all agree we want our kids to have the love of reading for the rest of their lives. And I think there are things that happen in school that are out of our control that do kind of push their way into family life to make that child feel a little less yeah. eager. Um, and so one of the reasons why I think at Scholastic and for myself personally, uh, the read aloud, and Karen mentioned it at the very beginning, is so important to us. So important, in fact, that at Lit World, we created a holiday around the read aloud called World Read Aloud Day, which happens every year on February 1st. February 1st, February like 1st. National Read Aloud Day. World Read World. Aloud. World Read Aloud Day. Mm -hmm. I can see that on our screen right now. Almost. I, yeah. I love okay. it. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, I hope everyone listening, watching will <laughs> celebrate World Read Aloud Day. And if not this year, yeah. then next year. Yeah. Um, and really what it came from was I was in a classroom where um, I was reading aloud to the kids, and one of the kids said, Mrs. Allen, that feels so good, but we never do that anymore. We used to do it, but we don't anymore. And I said, you know, we have to make sure people understand how important it is. And he said, well, like my birthday, when I have my birthday, we have a big party. He said, so we should have a big party for the read aloud. And that really clicked in my mind. Wow. And so now Scholastic and Lit World together host this big party, and we just have a big event. And... Um, the reason I'm saying that is because I think what happens with children and young adults in reading is that they get to a certain age, and then we as parents, grandparents, teachers, we say, okay, now you're too old for the read aloud. Go ahead, do it yourself. Just when, in fact, they may need more scaffolding. And I say, mm -hmm. when in doubt, read aloud. That's my mantra. Because, um, and it doesn't have to be anything fancy either. You know, yeah. my father... My strong memories of my father growing up were that he used to read aloud to me from the sports pages of the news. He was from Cleveland, Ohio, and he loved the, the teams from Cleveland. They never <laughs> won anything um, until after he died, which was like so sad. He never got to see all that winning. But he, but he, 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 really, he really steeped that in me. And mm. who knows if, you know, I wasn't into sports. I mean, maybe that was his way of just saying, I'm going to make sure yeah. one of my kids, this kid who's not that into the sports. But I think the read aloud is a, a powerful tool because it levels the playing field, it equalizes it, and it actually, research shows that, you know, whether it's about teaching grammar, academic vocabulary, background knowledge, uh, learning in dual languages, or just simply steeping yourself in literary and informational text, the read aloud is actually incredibly stimulating for the brain. And you're making your mental images that way. You're sort of released from having to comprehend and decode. But you're doing a lot of the work of reading anyway. Um, and also being marinated in, in written text, which is actually different from oral language. So it's, um, 
that's a number one thing that I'll say to families is if you're reading aloud to your younger child, invite your older child to sit in. It doesn't matter if the book is at a lower reading level at all. And the other thing is, I would say my second big piece of advice to parents is to, you, you don't have to be the educator at home. Is you're, you're really their biggest champion. You're mm. their fan. They're your superhero. Um, is to say, if they want to read Captain Underpants for the 50th time, just say, that's awesome. And we're going to buy like every single Captain Underpants book. <laughs> so real positive, affirmational. Yeah. Um, I know it's hard because we want so badly for our kids to be able to do these things. Um, but I think the read aloud and that sort of positive affirmation make it at home. And then the third piece I'll say about that is, if, you, if that's happening, then something is definitely happening. And so I would encourage parents to talk honestly with the classroom teacher and say, I'm not seeing what I hope I would mm. see at home and what's getting in the way and is there something we could do to help? Yeah. I'm going to start reading out loud on the airplane. Nice, nice. You'll Just to see you what might kind of reactions I get You'd be surprised yeah. at well, how starting. enjoyable. Yeah. You might have a few people that ask you to be quiet so they can sleep, but, um, but I think also looking at their interests, right? So what are they interested in? Leaving some books around um, that are coffee table books of their interests or, um, you know, a gift of a book. So I, I think thinking about, because every child is so different and every child brings such a different strength, so playing to their strengths um, as well is, is important, but I would also check in with the teacher, see what's happened, um, you know, why, why that child, you know, see if we can get to the why, not just the symptom, but really yeah. look at the, the root. And it may have been, um, as Pam said, um, not a very good experience at mm -hmm. some point um, mm -hmm. that we have to overcome. Mm. Well. well, our time has flown by. What? It's over? I can't over. believe how fast Already. it's gone. But I'm not going to let you out of here without one of my favorite questions I always like to ask. Um, everyone, when you run into people in the world of education, can oftentimes cite a favorite teacher that they had. Um, but I'd like to twist that question just a little bit for you and ask, can you think back to your time, whether it's as a, as a student or as a parent, um, of a favorite principal? Um, that you encountered and, and why? Well, should I go first? Sure. All right. Um, okay, Mrs. Wishney uh, was my daughter's principal at Hillside Elementary School in Hastings on Hudson, New York. And uh, she was an incredible, incredible leader. And I would say when you ask that question, it's such a wonderful question because we do ask it about teachers and um, and so to give tribute to these unsung heroes, Mrs. Wishney, the reason she was an amazing administrator is because she knew every child. She knew them inside and out. She was always standing right by the door to welcome them by name each and every day. Not only that, but she also, and I think I had a special privilege mm -hmm. um, in being an educator, and she invited me in as part of their community as a literacy leader. So I got to see this a little bit more up close than perhaps some of my uh, friends in the community did, but she also knew her teachers that way too. She understood them, she was an advocate for them, she gave them coaching when they needed it, and understood that they, teaching is a very lonely profession in a lot of ways, and. She did a lot of professional development work for them and with them. And then third and finally, I would say she was a true literacy leader. Mm. She emanated 
a love for reading. She always read aloud. She always embraced. If I had an idea, let's, Mrs. Wishney, let's do a writing celebration for the whole school. She was never one to say no. She would always say, how can I say yes? Yeah. Give me a good idea, Pam, and then let's do it. Yeah. Uh, we had family reading nights, family book nights. We had um, writing celebrations right from the very first kindergarten, the minute the kids got to kindergarten. She was one of the first principals I met who um, embraced the idea of looping from K to one. And, um, and even though there was some pushback to it, just said, I just think it's a, an amazing idea and yeah. encouraged teachers who wanted to, to actually do it. But Mrs. Wishney is, um, she's retired now. Uh, my kids are in their 20s. Uh, one is in medical school and one is in law school. And I would say that both of them carry Mrs. Wishney every single day. Wow. Yeah. Right on. Thanks mm -hmm. for sharing. What yeah. And I would say my principal in high school, Mr. Driscoll, um, amazing man, um, 2,200 students in Lenape Regional High School in New Jersey, and had, knew every student. Um, so he knew not only the students who were challenging, but he knew the good students as well. Um, so he knew the gamut. He built incredible relationships with mm. students. He came to the games. He would come to after-school activities, whether it was the Spanish club or the chess club. Um, but he would always um, be around and be available. His office was a revolving door of students wanting to talk with him. Although he obviously wasn't a guidance counselor, many of the students forged incredible relationships uh, with him to just as a sounding board, yeah. uh, always there. Um, and I'll, I was chosen to be a foreign exchange student in high school. And I'll never forget him coming down to, the, um, to my classroom. You know, I was in um, English classroom, we'll never forget it. And the two of us, the other girl and myself, who were finalists, um, he called us both out. And I'm like, we couldn't have done anything wrong, could we? <laughs> and, you know, certainly when you see the principal. But just the way he um, embraced us both, he made us feel so important in that school. So it was that relationship building that I, you know, will forever treasure. When you were out in the community, um, he still knew who you were. Yeah. So. Principles well, are important. Thank you both for sharing. It's one of my favorite questions, and I always love the answer. Thank you. Uh, thanks for being super leaders. <laughs> thanks for being super readers. Thanks for uh, joining us today. On behalf of all the principals in the state of Washington, we really appreciate you giving the time. Thank you. Thank you so much for all you do for your principals as well. And again, I'd like to special shout out to Scholastics for making all this happen. So really, thank you, Scholastic, for partnering with us. Tune in next time for another episode of AWSB TV. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. To catch all of our episodes, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can watch AWSB TV and our other great video content. If you have ideas for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, shoot me an email at david at awsp.org. We'll do our best to make it happen. On behalf for all of us at AWSP, we hope you tune in again. Keep up the great work for kids, and we'll see you next time.